This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. If we are indifferent, then we've lost the battle because we are all interconnected in an extraordinary way. And it is deep and it is real across any geography. And if we choose to be indifferent to the lives of those around us, then we will, we will start to lose some of our humanity as well. This week, my guest is the attorney, human rights activist, and CEO of the Bridgeway Foundation, Shannon Sedgwick Davis. The mission of the Bridgeway Foundation is to bring about a world free of genocide and mass atrocities, a mission that Shannon has not taken lightly and has made her life's work. She's seen the grim reality of our world, but has refused to stop fighting for justice because she knows the strength of the human heart and witnesses it day after day through her work. For those of you in the next generation, her greatest hope is that the pain and suffering that occurs in our world doesn't suppress your hope. Here's our conversation. Shannon, thank you so much for coming on the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I mean, we have so many like interconnections. This is, I'm, I'm really excited for this conversation. I really am too. Thanks for having me. Of course. So my first question is, is um, one that my mom sort of helped me with when I was starting this whole podcast. And it's about how our resumes are not a full explanation of who you are as a person. And what would you say is missing from your resume that people should know about you? Yes, and I love that you asked that question because not only are our resumes not a full representation of who we are as a person, our, our resumes oftentimes don't reveal that at all, right? They just reveal some things that have happened in our lives and possibly some milestones that we've crossed or some areas where we've just had serendipity in our lives, you know, and we're able to talk about those things. And so for me, I mean, first and foremost, just a human being, right? Living in a messy world, trying to figure things out. A mom uh, living in a messy world, trying to figure things out. Um, but also a door kicker, you know, I really have gotten to the point in my life where I like to kick down doors, especially arbitrary doors, right? Doors that just, we put up in our minds because we say, oh, I can help up until this point, but I really can't go that next mile, um, mm -hmm. to make a difference or help or, oh, I'm, I'm facing this resistance, and that must just be because that's how things are. And just this idea that we reject that and uh, that we at least try to try to kick down a few doors in our lives um, for the better, so. Door kicker, I like that. <laughs> so I would say that you know you're like a social justice warrior. I know that you are a lawyer, you're an activist, a door kicker now. Um, but how did you get involved in sort of international human rights and social justice? Yeah, so that was really interesting. I mean, in, in terms of being raised, I was raised by parents who were really good about affirming things that made my heart beat fast. Um, I think sometimes as, as parents, and I know this myself as a parent, we oftentimes look around at the other kids in the school or look around in our communities and think, oh, my kid needs to do X, Y, and Z. And my parents were great about just rejecting that idea and looking for spaces where I was really, um, I was just more lit up. And they would double down on that and affirm that. And so it, it 
it started when I was younger with, um, I would just bring in all the stray animals, right? That were in our neighborhood and families. And so they're like, let's get you volunteering at a shelter. Um, and <laughs> And then by high school, I was bringing in stray kids, right? Kids that had been kicked out of their house because they'd upset their parents or something. Um, and so I always just, I was really always bent with this idea that, um, that some of us live lives so vastly different than the others, but we all have the same value as human beings. And there was such a disconnect for me in that. And that's what I call the justice sort of disconnect. Just this idea that, um, that there is an inherent injustice in how we've chosen to interact as human beings on this planet. And so that set me up to think about law school. I went, I went to law school and then, um, and then during law school, there were the earthquakes in Turkey, those big earthquakes in Adapazara and Guljik. And I went over and volunteered for a week. And while I was working in this sort of relief work there on the ground, I, um, I would take the, the water taxi every day from, uh, you know, from the European side of Istanbul to the Asian side. And at those landings for those taxis, um, I met a little boy, I met several kids, but I met a little boy named Pilar who was peddling uh, these Kleenex packets, you know, and trying to get you to buy um, these Kleenex packets. And he was very young. And um, the first time I just bought some Kleenex packets from him. And then this became my routine because I would leave in the morning and come back in the evening. So I would see him every time. And then one day I just gave him some money for, for food. and. Um, and he uh, and I watched some of the older kids swoop in and take the money. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to be really smart. Right. The next time I'm just going to buy him the food. So I bought him a little food when we came through. And then I watched some of these older kids swoop in and take his food. And then I said, OK, I'm going to buy him food and I'm going to sit with him uh, while he eats it. And how ridiculously arrogant was it? that I was discharging almost my guilt by trying to buy him food and not thinking through the entire process anyway and thinking about what it means to be fully present, right? A lot of people go and they say, oh, I wanna help with this or that. And they miss this idea of relationships and presence that is first and foremost in any of that, right? And, and that should dictate that, especially when you're not in your own country and you're not in your own backyard. And uh, so he taught me this extraordinary lesson of what I call the gift of presence. And what does it mean to be fully present with someone? And in doing so, he and I really established a little relationship. And uh, I realized that he was a street child, that uh, he slept there um, at the taxi landings every night, uh, that he wasn't going to school, uh, that a lot of those children had been forced to sniff glue and other things uh, to sort of make them addicts, if you will. And, uh, and they were working, of course, for some folks that were essentially almost holding them in slavery. And that really made me think, you know what, I not only care about justice, but uniquely I'm interested in some of these international justice issues. And uh, that kind of set me on my way to start exploring some of that work. On your path. Well, you know, I, I'm still sort of interested in your path because I was speaking to my friend Camilla about this um, interview. And one of the things we both said we were interested in is, you know, you're 
the CEO of the Bridgeway Foundation, and the organization's goal is to end mass atrocities around the world. But you could have just been sort of a, a CEO who sat in an office in Texas and sort of wrote checks. But you've chosen to sort of actually make this your life mission and, you know, to travel to the DRC and to Uganda and, and continuously be on the ground. And so I'm wondering when this sort of went from being a passion to, to your life's mission, for lack of a better term. Yes. And to be really clear, we tried that, right? We started doing that. We were giving, um, you know, we were giving millions of dollars away across multiple countries, you know, in an effort to follow our mission and try and end mass atrocity on the globe. And what we realized a few years in, there was just sort of this moment of clarity. And I realized that we weren't at all doing our mission. Our mission was to end mass atrocities on the globe. And we were funding efforts prior to that, advocacy efforts to try to get the United Nations to engage deeper, or in some cases, try to get the US government to engage on issues deeper. But, um, or we were coming in in the aftermath. Uh, a rebel group might burn down a school. We'll, we'll rebuild the school. And that was, um, that was really disheartening to sort of look back on years of funding efforts and realize we weren't doing our mission at all. And so at that point, we had two choices. We either change our mission statement and we'd be an organization that funded advocacy efforts or an organization that funded aftercare efforts, or we actually try and do what we say, and we actually try to end mass atrocities. And that, and the decision to do that, and, and that's the direction we went, we said, let's try and do what our mission statement says. And in making that decision, we set a foot on something that uh, I could never have imagined was going to be so, uh, so deeply involved. Writing checks is sort of the easiest thing to do as a foundation. And, um, and actually engaging in this work is much, much harder because especially in, in mass atrocities and atrocities that are, are existing among these asymmetric conflicts that exist in different regions that are disproportionately affecting the poor, as almost all of these mm -hmm. issues do. We, uh, we found that the greatest solutions already existed there in the communities. And it was all about listening to the ideas coming from the communities. This girl with her white face had no idea, right? I mean, I just, we've never lived through that. And not only listening to their ideas, but empowering them and funding those ideas. And so these people don't have 501c3s, right? It's a woman who's in her home that realizes that several of these kids have lost their parents due to this atrocity. And so she's bringing in all of these kids to her house. She's essentially running a huge foster care home, um, but she doesn't know that to call it that. Right. She's being an extraordinary human doing and so it's what does it look like to provide support to them and often that support is small dollar amounts you know so it's very hard to spend a lot of money that way it's it's much um much more complicated to look at the small uh projects and empower 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 and make sure the entire time that all you're doing is staying behind the scenes and lifting up those who are true leaders in their community and elevating their ability to be even more and more influential. And so that is what, that's what set us on that path. Um, and it certainly was a different path than I had ever anticipated being on. Well, how has COVID sort of affected your work and the work of the foundation then? 
Yeah, so COVID just, uh, you know, initially slowed us down um, and has certainly brought a layer of complications around the fact that different uh, countries have different restrictions for travel, et cetera. But as I mentioned, you know, just earlier in terms of being present and that being what I think is kind of the secret sauce to how we are able to fund, it's being in relationship with those, um, th those that we're working with. Uh, we weren't, it wasn't an option to stop traveling. So we picked travel back up again this year and uh, we've had to navigate uh, some really extraordinary, uh, <laughs> extraordinary red tape uh, in different places, and um, and just be as smart and safe as possible. But um, it's it it has been quite the work doesn't stop, right? The atrocities don't stop just because there's a pandemic. If anything, they're heightened um, because uh, there's less resources available to folks who are trying to stop this in their backyards. Yeah, and so many people you know, from the West who may have been involved or have their hands in it, have stopped. That's right. So it's- Oh, that's right. It, in fact, it's 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 dire, to be honest. I, I think that what we saw even prior to COVID was the mass atrocity space was a really hard space to fund into. And so when we look at those who are funding in this space, the list was already tiny and it was diminishing. It was getting smaller and smaller because it is so complicated to fund into these areas. And that was pre-COVID. And so you're absolutely right. When COVID happened, we just watched others and other peers also flee the area, at least temporarily. And, uh, and that's also a large responsibility we have. Um, as I mentioned, you know, those who are on the ground have the greatest solutions for the problem. Something I can do and something I have to be better at doing is influencing funds into, that, into those regions and making sure that we're still paying attention. Well, something I know that you have done also is you wrote a book called To Stop a Warlord. And it's sort of the true story of the efforts to stop the LRA, Lord's Resistance Army, for any of my listeners who may not know, and Joseph Coney. And so I'm wondering, A, what that story was like, but then how writing that was. Yes, and I so appreciate your two-part question. I don't, no one ever asks the second question. And the second question is the absolute most relevant question for me. Because girl, I never thought I'd write a book. and. <laughs> I hated every minute of it. It's the hardest thing I've ever done is write the book. And you know, the reason I hated it um, so much was because the story was so sacred that I didn't feel like words on a page could do it justice. I mean, the, the heroes, the extraordinary people that I encountered and had the privilege to work with on this project. It was so powerful that I was deeply concerned that in telling the story, I wouldn't be able to convey how extraordinary they were. And that's that's what interests me about how the, the writing process is for each person because it is so different and so personal and you are pulling a lot from yourself not even thinking of the people's stories that you may be pulling from as well. Yes, and so we came up with a solution um, that, that helped, I think, ease the way for some of this. Um, we decided to uh, really elevate the story of one of the gentlemen who had been involved with us from the start, who had formerly been kidnapped by the LRA and had been involved in that 
we decided to try to weave his story throughout the book. And so he wrote those pieces and every couple of chapters, there's a chapter of David's life that really just helps guide the reader and ground the reader um, from someone who more aptly should be telling the story, right? Someone who was front and center and experienced the story. And uh, I think that really allowed us and helped us um, make sure that we were conveying as much as possible uh, not only the truth, but the extraordinary um, people involved in, in these types of, of issues and that face these issues every day. And yeah, the story of the LRA was a really unique one. When we made that decision about our mission statement and we said we're either going to change it or we're going to try and actually do what we say, we looked across all the different conflicts we were funding and we said, let's pilot it, let's try and stop a mass atrocity. And the LRA at the time felt like low-hanging fruit. There was a global consensus about the bad guy, right? Like I did, there you weren't going to argue with many people about whether or not Joseph Coney uh, truly was the aggressor and 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 making the the wrong decisions all along the way on this, but. Additionally, it was a non-state actor, which really felt like it was helpful to us. It took away some of the bureaucratic levels in terms of dealing with, if we were dealing with, say, President Bashir in Sudan or something, that would have been a much different, um, a much different basket there of, of issues and problems. And uh, there was also a local group that was authorized and had the authority to go and try to stop this conflict. And so we were able to plus efforts of something that already existed. So we chose that. Um, I did, like I said, thought it was a low hanging fruit and 10 years later uh, learned that it wasn't. Um, it <laughs> might've been the easiest one on the list in hindsight, but um, it certainly was uh, low hanging fruit was such an inappropriate way to think about it in, in hindsight. And so just as we dove in, we looked for gaps on the interventions against the LRA. And we talked to the U.S. State Department. We talked to our friends on the ground. Um, and we had built, you know, decade-long relationships on the ground uh, to learn from them. We talked to different groups like Human Rights Watch and others who had been involved in this and had been thinking through these solutions for a while. And the two major gaps that came up were communications. The LRA was often operating in an area with no cell phone towers, oftentimes not even radio towers or any ability to sort of communicate. And the second was uh, a lack of training for the Ugandan and later the African Union troops who were set to go about trying to stop uh, this particular tragedy. Uh, a lack of training in terms of how they dealt with the fact that it was largely a child army and how do you protect the kids when you go in to do this work, but also a lack of training in terms of the terrain and um, and the way that the LRA had gotten so used to operating in an area that had no communications and, um, and was often a very, very remote. And so communications felt easy, right? Like, or not easy, but felt easy compared. It was, and felt safe. You know, the lawyer and me is like, okay, we can help provide communications. We found some extraordinary individuals that were already trying to set up radio networks through the Catholic Church there, Father Abe Benoit. I mean, we essentially 
were able to stand on his shoulders and help expand a radio network that he had started that would allow these communities to communicate with one another when they were seeing instability or when they were seeing LRA attacks. And that was critical because oftentimes the LRA would attack a village and then just go a few kilometers and attack the next one. And the next village didn't know they were coming. And so the idea was perhaps there could be some sort of early warning system that would arise if they just had the ability to communicate with one another. In doing so and in setting that up, what we saw was we started to see trends in terms of how the LRA was operating and moving. And then that begs the question, then do you need to provide you know, training and help those who are pursuing the LRA to bring about a close to this. And so we made that very difficult um, and unconventional decision to get engaged in helping fill that particular gap as well. You know, just hearing that story about the LRA, I imagine there are moments when you get reports or you, you're on the ground and you hear something that sort of breaks your heart. And so twofold, I wonder if you've ever had a moment where you've been like, I don't know if I can keep doing this, or if you've had one of those moments, but then what sort of propelled you to continue? So I had those moments maybe daily, sometimes weekly, if it was a good season. Um, I still, to this day, when I articulate the work that we engaged in, I still think to myself, I still have my traditional human being brain, lawyer brain going, wait, what? Did, not mm -hmm. only did we do this, but it was, you know, we checked out the laws and stuff. And I just kept thinking I was going to run into red tape and there never was any, right? It's again, these arbitrary doors or borders that we put up. And sometimes we, we, we fence our hearts with those too, which is really awful, right? And we do it to protect ourselves. It makes sense. Um, awful things that not only did I witness uh, when we were on the ground and when we were operating forward in these bases, but um, stories heard. I mean, a, a child that was kidnapped that tried to run back home to his parents and was forced uh, to be held down on the ground and pieces of flesh bit out of his skin um, by the other children that were kidnapped um, until he perished. I mean, evil on this level that's almost impossible, um, I, I think impossible for us to understand as, as human beings. And we're not meant to understand that. Uh, we shouldn't be meant to understand or comprehend that kind of evil. But then you said, what was it that kept you going? And it was the moments of victory. It was the moments where we uh, would be on the airfield and we would hear about a group that was defecting and uh, one of our helicopters would go out and get the group. And I would watch as these women would disembark with their children, um, sometimes holding infants in their arms. And in this extraordinarily cloudy place in Central Africa Republic, um, it always felt like the clouds would part and that the sun would just shine so brightly down in those moments. And it was almost like that happened every time. And that, um, that gave us oxygen uh, to keep going and, and confirmation uh, that we needed to keep going. And what, I mean, there are so many, so I, 
even hate to sort of ask it in this way, but what mass atrocity would you say is sort of occurring at this moment that not enough of us are paying attention to, or we're just in general not paying enough attention to? Yes, there's one that we're currently involved in, and it's unfortunately in a very similar region that the LRA operated in. And it is a group called the ADF, which has formal formal ties to ISIS. Um, it, at any given time, is the third deadliest group on the African continent. It is responsible for um, atrocious, um, atrocious murders and kidnappings and torture. And it is again in this fairly remote area. And uh, there is all, not a lot of intervention and there are not a lot of eyes on it. Uh, we've been very fortunate in the last couple of weeks to see the US government sanction the top leaders in this group and to see some press in and around that. And we're grateful for that just so that more people become aware of this particular group. But um, these are these are extraordinary people that are being victimized um, by uh, by this particular group, and it has to stop. Yeah, I mean, what what would you say we need to be doing to move towards peace and, and human rights for everyone? Yeah. So first and foremost, I tell people, I you know, I don't care if you're an accountant in the middle of Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> or if you're a farmer in somewhere in Latin America, uh, first and foremost, we need to be aware. There is so much value just in us being aware. And that's hard, right? Because we see awful news stories or we hear stories and we feel like we are powerless to respond. And so what often happens is we become almost uh, bolted to our chairs in despair when we hear these stories. And um, we have to find a way to ingest this, these stories and this information, because in and of itself, that allows for empathy, right? I mean, that, that actually is a sign of empathy, that we're willing to hear a story. I can't tell you the number of times that we've been with folks um, that have been victims of these tragedies, and um, they're brought to tears when they find out that uh, there's been media stories, uh, Western media stories, and that other people know what they're dealing with. There is some almost beauty in the fact for them that others are aware and, um, and that know what is going on. And, uh, and, and I think it's really important for us to be responsible and hear those stories. Now, the next question then is, what do we do, right, if, um, if we hear the stories? And for each individual um, atrocity, there's usually something different, right? Sometimes we can put pressure on our local leaders. I mean, the idea that we are not powerful to do that, I reject. Uh, we are, and we can make loud noises at times. We might also find that we're moved to tell others about it and, uh, and to be a source of information for others. We might also find that we're moved to actually do something. You know, never would I have imagined uh, that we would have found ourselves or that I would have found myself living on a military base in Central and East Africa for large periods of time. Um, and that's where I ended up. And so a lot of times if we're just willing to take these first couple steps, 
uh, the next step is often revealed to us and, and is important. I, I think that oftentimes as well, it can really help us um, find a place of gratitude with our current situations and in doing so uh, really help us continue to push, uh, to push the outer bounds of what might be possible because we are deeply powerful as human beings. Uh, and we miss that. Oh my gosh, and especially during COVID time, girl, I'm still <laughs> missing it during COVID time. I'm like, I've got my kids, you know, taking over my office to do their schoolwork. The dogs are barking, it's so loud. I can't ever reach people overseas where I need to work. And I mean, there are, so, and I don't wanna get out of bed cause I'm morbidly depressed. I mean, just getting out of bed at this point takes me leaning into some of my power. And I, you know, I think that it is really important for us to remember that we are incredibly powerful and that no one, no one gets to define the limits of our power. Not the president of our countries, not laws. If there are laws that uh, define um, our power in a way that is restrictive to others' liberty, no, that has to be rejected. And, um, and if we are powerfully willing to sort of lean into that, then others are gonna come alongside us. And uh, there's, there's great community in that and an ability just to say, no, not on my watch, no more. I think I needed that reminder. So thank you. And, and you know, speaking of leaders, I know that you sit on the board of the elders, funny enough, I did a, a campaign with the elders in Turkey when I was 17. It's when they were doing like the the climate change campaign where they did the grandkids and the and the elders. And I just remember it was just sort of us giving my grandfather a hard time on video and President Carter's grandchildren basically doing the same thing. Um, but we had a lovely time. The video, I'm a bit embarrassed of how I look now. I loved it. No, y'all were throwing these beach balls that were the size of a globe, mm -hmm. essentially. Oh, my goodness. That was one of my favorite, favorite memories. Yes. Oh. And Mabel was sort of like directing in the background of like what, yeah. So it was, it was, a, it was a fun experience. But I wonder sort of what you have learned from our elders. Oh my goodness, that has been one of the greatest uh, pieces of all of this. Uh, before we made this decision to actually go and try to intervene in mass atrocities, I was fortunate enough to join the advisory board of the elders. And, um, and in doing so, there was uh, this ability to watch and learn from several of our elders. And uh, as you know, I. Archbishop Tutu is one of our elders. President Carter was one of our elders. Mary Robinson, who's a powerhouse woman out of Ireland, was one of our elders. And uh, just to sit at their feet and uh, learn from their past experiences, uh, learn from uh, the ways that they had navigated certain conflicts and crises and sometimes failed, right? I mean, it's really, really extraordinary. It's You can learn stuff from people's victories, but you can learn a whole lot from people's failures. And uh, that was some of the magic that happened. One of the most beautiful things I learned along the way when we were we were traversing this um, this issue with the LRA, and we I was having a lot more down moments, as I mentioned, than high moments. And it was becoming um, weighty, 
uh, almost oppressive in terms of the evil that we were witnessing. And, um, and it felt like evil was winning a lot. And there was an elders trip to Sudan and I chose to, to go on that. And, um, and I was with Archbishop Tutu and we went out to Darfur and it was an awful situation. It's when uh, people had uh, very little access to water. People were dying because they didn't have enough food to eat. I mean, it was extraordinary what was happening in this particular region. And we were visiting with those folks. We had made a site visit and we were walking around visiting. And, you know, embarrassingly, I was under like the one stick tree that was out there with some shade and I was I was dying of heat. I was just... Meanwhile, Arch is walking around with his full cloak, I mean, in way more clothes than I was in, had to be just sweating bullets. And I was so devastated about the situation. And the situation looked impossible to me. I was, I was standing under this tree and so sad. And I looked over at Arch and he started to sing and he started to dance with these people that were like so sad and that were sitting there telling us their stories. And I was like, uh, you know, and then they started to sing and they started to dance. So this white girl had to dance, dance. sing as softly <laughs> as I could, both are not a strong suit. And um, the most valuable part of that experience was in the aftermath, I spoke to him about it. And I said, what was going on there? I mean, I was doing everything I could to hold back tears. I was exactly bolted to my chair in despair type situation. I was so sad. What was going on with that? And he said, oh, he said, sister, I was sad too. I mean, of course I was sad. He said, but joy is a discipline and we have to practice joy. And this idea that when we are in some of our darkest times and our hardest times, the last thing you want to do is try to force yourself to dance or sing. That's when you need to do it the most because um, joy isn't something that just always comes natural. In fact, when times are the hardest, that is when you need to experience joy the most. And so I took that lesson from him. And in the years that followed, when we were in some of our hardest times, I tried to practice joy as a discipline. I, um, I made a point of some of the lowest spots. Uh, there's several mentioned in the book, uh, one where we had an operation against Coney and we missed him by hours. Um, it was the first ever opportunity in years uh, that he had been located. And just in those sort of the depths of that sadness with tears coming, um, this idea that we needed to still laugh and we needed to sing and we needed to dance even if our bodies didn't feel like that. And uh, we make a point here now at the house of practicing joy. And um, it's been a great parenting tool as well. And if it's ever raining outside, we always just go dance in the rain now. So I'm, I'm the crazy mama that does it. And the boys just look at me like I'm nuts, but, um, but they play along, so. I will say his singing and dancing is better than his um, jokes, so. <laughs> see, see, so there you got it. Yeah, so I understand that. Well. I, I'm interested to know what your greatest fear for humanity is. 
My greatest fear for humanity is indifference. It's a big one. It's a big one. And I'm seeing it more than I think I've seen it yet in my career. And I don't think that it's a conscious decision to be indifferent because people have turned cold hearted or something like that. I think that people are choosing to be indifferent because the world is extremely weighty right now and things are very, very hard. And in times like that, it is even, it, it takes more energy, it takes more power uh, to choose not to be indifferent. But if we are indifferent, then we've lost the battle because we are all interconnected in an extraordinary way. And it is deep and it is real across any geography. And if we choose to be indifferent uh, to the lives of those around us, then we will, we will start to lose some of our humanity as well. Yeah. So then what is your greatest hope for humanity? So my greatest hope for humanity is, it honestly is encapsulated in those that I have been able to learn from. It is encapsulated in the spirit of those who are facing um, indescribable challenges and are continuing to rise to that challenge. The strength of the human heart is my greatest hope. And I have had an opportunity to witness it over and over. And I believe that that's what's going to carry the day. And I'm witnessing it more and more in this next generation of Americans. I've, um, I, I've gotten a little bummed about um, some of my generation, but this next generation of Americans, they're not, they're not playing. Um, and they are ready to go. And they, um, you know, there's always exceptions, but they seem to be so much more cognizant of uh, respecting differences and not only respecting them, but appreciating them and actually wanting to be around those that are more different than them to learn and to understand. They listen so much better than previous generations. Listening is half the ball game. It's I have to listen to be able to understand what someone's truly going for going through and listening isn't, you know, I'm listening to your question and then being responsive. Listening actually requires a lot of activeness, right? It requires, um, it requires not only hearing through your ears what someone says, but truly actually letting that metabolize within you. And that is much, much harder. And this generation has a natural knack for it. And uh, I don't want that to be suppressed. So I want them to see this hope, and um, and that is my um, that is my great hope is that we don't find a way to suppress that with the weight of the world, but that we continue to look for ways to unlock that with this generation. I, I think this generation can do that, and you know, you have a picture of my grandfather and his book behind you. So we will have to continue this conversation in person with the three of us later on. But I wanted to thank you so much for coming on Everyday Ubuntu. It was wonderful to speak with you. I loved it. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at moongi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. 
I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.